Hey everyone, welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, a co-founder at Delphi Digital, where we're five relentless full-time analysts focused on institutional crypto research. If you aren't a subscriber, you're missing out, so visit the site while you're listening. One quick housekeeping item, this podcast is strictly informational and educational and is not investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens or securities or to make any financial decisions. I may personally own tokens mentioned on the podcast. With that out of the way, today I'm thrilled to have on Manib Ali, the CEO and co-founder of Blockstack PBC. Blockstack is a high-profile project in the space with the goal of creating a decentralized computing network and app ecosystem. To differentiate this episode versus other podcasts, I wanted to focus on Blockstack's end goals, that being potentially creating a new decentralized version of Amazon Web Services, which hosts basically the world's business and consumer workloads and apps. Creating this platform could in turn host a viral set of apps built on top of it, such as a Facebook killer. Manib is insanely smart. He shares his vision and so much more. The discussion on creating a decentralized AWS and to host the next Facebook killer is interesting to say the least. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to have Manib Ali on. He is the co-founder of Blockstack and serves as the CEO of Blockstack PBC. Manib, how's it going? I'm doing well. How's it going? Good. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for taking the time. So, Manib, I know you've been a uh, you know on the podcast and the news track a bit this month, but just to recap, people new to the story, could you give the elevator pitch on what Blockstack is? Absolutely. So Blockstack is a decentralized computing network. Uh, I think people can think of it as an alternative to cloud computing. What we really do is we provide developers with uh, developer libraries and handle the infrastructure needs for them. So imagine instead of building on something like AWS, where you're managing all the servers and you're managing all the databases, you effectively use Blockstack libraries and the decentralized network uh, to build your application. That's excellent. So, just to put this in perspective for our listeners, you know, how do you mentally think about the current landscape for developers and applications? And I definitely want to spend some time and focus on how you guys compare to the AWSs and the Facebooks of the world. I guess at a high level, just to begin, how do you think about the internet today versus what you're trying to build? Yeah, I think the you can almost like divide the internet into two phases before. Sometimes people call it the web 1.0, web 2.0, and, and they're calling this kind of like the new decentralized phase, the web 3.0. I actually don't like that framing or even the terms, but in general, I think it was the kind of like the start of the internet uh, when people had desktops and the underlying internet protocols were open and they were decentralized and they effectively enabled uh, people to talk to each other, right? More in a peer-to-peer fashion than everyone kind of like talking to the same company uh, fashion. And that was kind of like the early 90s and even early 2000s. And we have seen several systems like, you know, Napster or other P2P protocols emerge in, in early 2000s as well. And over, over the next decade or so, uh, we effectively saw this shift to cloud computing. Not only that people started doing less things at their computers, 
like imagine your 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 desktop or your laptop uh, is becoming more like a dumb drive. It's just a screen, and you're connected to some computer at Google or Amazon, and most of the interesting things are now happening at the server side, at the at at the cloud side, uh, and that's kind of like the cloud computing era. Uh, and we have all seen the impacts of uh, of of this architecture where everyone is becoming more and more dependent on a handful of companies online and we have seen in the in the recent years this backlash against facebook or the policies that companies like facebook have and how much control they have on the users but it fundamentally comes from the programming model that instead of running uh, desktop applications with the user, you're effectively everyone is connecting to a handful of large companies and and using their services. That makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you you're described or Blockstack is described as a centralized computing network and app ecosystem, and you guys run with the tagline that you put users in control of their identity and data. I think people are pretty aware of this, but how much of people's identity and data are we giving away today, or how much is really out there? Because I feel like everything is out there. People just don't really care at this point. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, five years ago, when you would talk to people about it, you would definitely hear that, yes, we don't care. Our users in general, they don't care about it. Over the years, we have actually seen um, awareness around this subject where people are are, uh, caring more about their data, their privacy, plus they're becoming more and more aware of potential issues with it. Even to the extent that uh, different governments around the world are also becoming more aware of these problems. Like we recently saw the GDPR bill uh, out of Europe, which is effectively forcing tech companies to take actions uh, that help protect users' data and, and user privacy. Right, And we might actually see similar things in the US and other countries as well. So I think awareness is definitely on the rise. And at least in my view, this is the only direction that we would end up heading in because uh, like, there's no other way to go. We were just uh, so used to a shockingly broken model uh, that once you know we started seeing the different cracks and different problems, it, it will be very hard to go back. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. I'm wondering what that inflection point will be. But you know, going into the design goals of Blockstack and what you guys are trying to optimize for, you release your new white paper, and, and three of the design goals are ease of use, scalability, and user control. Uh, I think a lot of these things are, are great talking points when it comes to blockchain and crypto because they're just so you know nascent now. I mean, it's very hard to use decentralized applications today. Scale really isn't there when you want to maintain decentralization and user control. Um, I think is kind of hard. So, you know, how do you approach these design goals? Are these you know binary options for applications built on Blockstack, or is this kind of what you hope to achieve for every application on Blockstack? I think it's definitely something we hope to achieve for every application, and these are these are as you have pointed out, these are pretty hard problems, right? And we can we can break them down. Uh, the first one about scalability, I think there is this broad realization in the crypto industry that the current uh, platforms don't scale, and we need something else. There are various efforts going on. For example, the uh, Ethereum community is trying to build ETH 2.0, and I think it is something uh, that is been gaining a lot of attention and there are all these different proposals that get debated and so on. Uh, I think at Blockstack, we've always taken a very different approach to scalability. 
I don't want to come across as, hey, I told you so, but even going back to 2015, 2016, I was pointing out to these architectures where people are trying to build uh, the equivalent of a quote-unquote world computer and effectively, very publicly saying that 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 is almost impossible and we can't do it purely from a technical perspective. And an approach here needs to be that you keep the blockchain layer very simple, very minimal. You don't put a lot of complexity, a lot of logic at the blockchain layer. And you effectively try to scale out by uh, putting complexity at the edges, meaning the clients, right? So that your clients are doing uh, uh, the bulk of the work and you reduce global state transitions. So with blockchains, like most things end up being global state changes. And this is an idea that I've been against for, for a very long time, that most things don't need to be a global state change. You can localize those state changes um, with, with a single user or with a, with a user and everyone else who, that is impacted by that change. Uh, imagine, imagine a tweet, right? Like if I'm tweeting, only my followers need to know. Like everyone in the world doesn't need to know. So you can you can roughly look at scalability from that lens. That in the blockchain world, every single thing is a global transaction, uh, a global state change, and that's a that's fundamentally the wrong design approach, I think. So that's the design approach that we took, which is almost like the complete opposite of most other. Uh, the work that most other projects are doing in this space, which is very interesting that I don't think that there are a lot of projects that are following uh, this different architecture that we tend to follow. So it'll be very interesting to see how, how things play out out in the market. Uh, what, what that resulted in is you can have scalable applications, applications that can realistically get to millions of users today on top of Blockstack, just in terms of pure scalability, how many users can there be, how many interactions uh, that can be supported. And then the, the next uh, design goal is about user control and, and basically making it very easy for developers to build these applications are also very hard challenges, as you can imagine. And, and a lot of work kind of like goes into it. And I'm happy to like uh, dig deeper into, into those aspects as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think it's worth hitting on scalability before we get into, you know, user control and your private lockers. I mean, you stated that apps on Blockstack could support millions of users today. I mean, for those new to the story, are you making any trade-offs to achieve that? Like, are you trading off decentralization or is this compute and storage hosted, you know, on a cloud server? I'm just wondering how you achieve that, uh, you know, millions of transactions per second per se. So, uh, just a clarification. So, it's not millions of transactions per second, right? It's uh, we fundamentally believe that there is a limitation on how much data can be synced at the blockchain layer. Like, imagine that it's a it's a global network by definition. So, which means you need to define what an average node looks like. So, you need a definition of how much memory or disk space is there at your average node. And then, basically, you can actually do this math uh, uh, on a piece of paper if you want to. And then you can figure out like how much data can be synced across this network. And then you can slice that data however you want, right? Like you could have very small transactions or larger transactions, but you would get to the rough kind of like throughput of your network. And you can't exceed that, right? So there is no magic software protocol that can actually send more data than the underlying uh, physical links would allow you, right? So that's that's kind of like the limitation that we are uh, working with over here. 
right? So once once people understand that limitation, I think it becomes easier to argue about uh, how how can we scale more because the only way to scale is by using the blockchain layer less and less doing fewer things at the blockchain layer and handling most of the complexity out, outside of the blockchain layer. That makes a lot more sense. I was definitely thinking about that the wrong way. So, you know, when you think about building on the layers above layer one, I mean, you know, Bitcoin has Lightning Network, Ethereum, I, I think has dozens of layer two solutions or teams working on it now from state channels to plasma and payment channels. Uh, Tezos, I think, is also working on one called Marigold. You know, how do you think about the competition in this space? Do you think that, you know, Blockstack's just launching or, or you know, is going live, and et cetera, but, you know, these teams are kind of hard at work already deploying layer two solutions. Do you see that as competitive or do you think that the architecture is still fundamentally broken on those blockchains? Yeah, so I think most of the L2 solutions, uh, at least in 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 my research that I've looked at, uh, they seem to be fairly early. I think Lightning is by far the most developed uh, L2 solution for Bitcoin payments, and it has a very specific use case, uh, Bitcoin payments. Whereas I would say that uh, Blockstack has been in R&D and then later on production phase for almost like four years now. Right, so a lot more work goes into designing extremely scalable distributed uh, systems, and and decentralized systems are a, kind of like a special case of a distributed system where you don't want to rely on any any single node on the network, right? But traditionally, these are distributed systems, and a lot of work goes into designing very highly scalable systems. So. Uh, Certain aspects of the Blockstack network, like maybe the Stacks blockchain v2, might be launching later in the year. But other aspects have actually been in production for 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 a lot of years. So, so in in that sense, I feel that our solution is a lot more mature, has been tested a lot more out in the wild. We now have, I believe, uh, more than 120 real applications built built on the system, uh, and and that's a that's a that's many months of. Uh, working with the developers, getting their feedback, improving our not only the core design, but also the uh, developer uh, libraries and how developers are actually building real things on top of these networks. We haven't started seeing developers building new things on top of uh, a lot of these L2 projects that you mentioned. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I guess there's definitely different velocities for each of these projects that are growing here. And you know, taking that a step further, I'm just wondering your take on like the ecosystem lock-in or competition here. I mean, Ethereum obviously has, you know, arguably the most developers in the room for crypto and blockchain. But on the flip side of that, I think that, you know, developers can leave or come whenever they want, but obviously they would lose the community and any value that they've built into the system. How do you think about, you know, ecosystem lock-in? Do you think that that's a competitive moat for, for blockchains and cryptos today? I, I do think the communities are very important. Uh, uh, there's this famous saying that, hey, you can fork the code base, but you can't fork the community. And I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a big believer in that. And I think in that sense, uh, I feel like that's one of the strongest things that Ethereum has because it was uh, an early project and there, there were a lot of community members who had a vested stake in the success of the project as well. And over, over the years, uh, they have, they have uh, done a great job kind of like maintaining and growing their community. Uh, I can't be critical of their technical decisions, but I should give them a lot of credit, uh, on, on especially on the community side. Uh, with, with that said, 
the most of the use cases on Ethereum right now tend to be in the decentralized finance space, and there are really good reasons for that. Uh, basically, the top two reasons are, one is that uh, the main programming interface available to developers is basically the smart contract language, uh, whereas BlockStack has taken a very different approach, where smart contracts are used for very few things, only when you need to automate something at the blockchain layer. And otherwise, you can actually write your applications in whatever language you are comfortable in. For most people, that means JavaScript. And you're effectively uh, kind of like working with the languages that you're used to instead of converting everything that you want to write into a smart contract. But smart contracts makes a lot of sense when you are talking about decentralized finance. Similarly, the on-chain scalability is not that big of a bottleneck when it comes to decentralized finance applications. Like, for example, you're not going to take a loan out, you know, 100,000 times a day. Uh, so, it, so decentralized finance tend to be a good fit, both from a scalability perspective and the fact that most things need to be a smart contract. Whereas if you look at Blockstack, uh, the, the 100 plus or 120 plus applications that I mentioned, uh, they're general purpose web three applications. Uh, there are things like alternative to Google Docs or uh, WhatsApp or 1Password or DocuSign. Uh, these applications, they're not your typical financial transactions that you're talking about. And they don't even need to do that many things at the, at the blockchain layer. And developers feel more comfortable writing them as normal uh, programs instead of expressing them as smart contracts. And I think that's an area where, where we are seeing a lot of traction. And frankly, uh, most of the developers that end up building on Blockstack uh, actually don't operate in crypto at all. Uh, most of the developers are outside of crypto and they discover Blockstack through different uh, distribution channels and end up building uh, on, on, on top of our ecosystem. We need one question there. Do you think that it's more important for Blockstack to attract those? And I forgot the estimates. I think it's like there's 20 million devs around the world or something. Do you think it's more important to attract those devs or do you think it's more important to atta- attract the current crypto and blockchain devs? Uh, I, I think my my view there is very, very clear. Uh, it, it is way more important to uh, attract developers outside of crypto for two reasons. One, it, it's a much, much bigger market. Uh, but secondly, and this this might be a little bit controversial, I actually think that most of the good developers are outside of crypto. The, in general, uh, there there are obviously really good engineers who are already working in crypto, but the general quality of people who are actually trying to build on top of platforms uh, tends to be not that high right now. And that, that seems to be a systematic problem because those developers also don't fully understand the trade-offs of the system that they're building on, right? They kind of like take the feature set of the underlying platform at face value and effectively believe whatever the project marketing material says instead of like looking under the hood and making intelligent decisions themselves about how should they architecture their their application for security and scalability. Great caller. So, Manib, just summing up, I mean, you guys are more focused on having like, say, AWS as a competitor or Microsoft Azure instead of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and say Tezos, you guys are way more focused on, you know, real applications and, and attracting the devs. You're not competing on uh, like normal crypto or blockchain metrics, I feel like. Yes. And this this actually comes up a lot in discussions like, you know, you would look at some uh, some website that is aggregating different dApps and they would ask us, what's your uh, 
transaction per second. And, and I'll have to explain to them how transaction per second is a bad metric and we don't even care about it. Uh, you actually should not have a lot of transactions at the blockchain. And it's a strange discussion because we have taken such a different approach where the typical metrics that people in crypto are looking at don't even apply to us, right? And in that sense, like, I think uh, it is easier for us to track against other traditional platforms. Like I can, I can give you an example, uh, for example, Twilio. Uh, Twilio's mission is to make it super easy for developers to interact with telecom infrastructure. And they're doing a great job. It's a public company. Uh, and I've, I've actually followed the company for a while. They're also a, a portfolio company of Union Square Ventures. And interestingly, like that model fits better for us where we are trying to make it super simple for developers to interact with decentralized computing. The difference being that we are also inventing some of those core protocols that uh, that need to exist so that developers can interact with the decentralized computing infrastructure. So in that sense, our job is a little bit harder than Twilio. They were, telecom infrastructure already existed, uh, and they were kind of like trying to, to make it super simple for developers to interact with it. Uh, and and we are, we are kind of like doing both. That's incredible. So starting with AWS, before we go into specific applications, let's start at, you know, kind of the infrastructure level where these, you know, current applications are built. So, I mean, AWS releases, you know, like thousands of products and services a year, their tooling's built out, they have, you know, take your pick here, the best apps and millions of devs. How do you attract developers from AWS to build on Blockstack? Like, do your, does your new model for applications where you know there's no servers and decentralized authentication and native tokens is that enough to attract the developers because I'm just wondering you know how blockstack takes on AWS here yeah I, th- I think that's a great question uh, we should dig a little bit into the the historical side of this so let's say that you go before cloud computing and the standard model, for building your applications back then was you have to go and purchase hardware. You have to purchase your servers. You have to go and uh, get licenses from, let's say, Oracle or somebody else for your databases. And so starting a company was a very, very expensive thing back then. You would have to raise like a couple of million dollars just for infrastructure costs, upfront costs, by the way, uh, and just to get started, right? And cloud computing changed that. It was a big jump. It was a big jump in the sense of now it's easier, cheaper, faster for developers to start their applications uh, without paying upfront for the infrastructure, right? So uh, they would just, you know, initially deploy some server on AWS, and if they're getting more users, they can actually start deploying more virtual machines, and, and a set of different technologies actually enabled cloud computing, including virtualization, uh, including kind of like this uh, economies of scale at the data centers layer where these companies were able to kind of like optimize their costs versus every single company trying to maintain kind of like their own servers and so on. So, So a bunch of factors contributed to that, but the end result was that it's now easier, cheaper, faster for developers to build on cloud computing versus the old way. The old way in many ways had had, had no chance uh, and and most of the world ended up building on top of cloud computing, not just AWS, but cloud computing in general, right? And fast forward kind of like a decade after cloud computing, what we are noticing is, again, due to several factors, with things like Bitcoin, things like, you know, having the possibility of these decentralized protocols, 
where uh, you don't need a single company uh, for coordination or managing these systems. But a large part is like incentive structures and having an entire economy around these crypto tokens as well, without which like, I don't think it's possible for decentralized computing to exist. So it's not just a, the technical nature of it, but the fact that so many other factors are also contributing to the rise of this industry. What's happening is that just like earlier, you did not need to go and buy your own hardware. Similarly, when you compare decentralized computing to cloud computing, what we are saying is you actually don't need to go and rent servers on AWS at all because you're not keeping data uh, with the server. You're actually keeping all of your data with, with, with the users and you don't need to run databases and pay a lot of costs. So for the developers, it ends up being the same story of like, this is just easier, cheaper, faster. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to build my applications uh, in this new way versus the old way. That makes sense. So, you know, when you think about the storage and the compute per se stored with the user, I mean, mentally, I think a lot of people abstract that away. Like, you know, it's not on AWS anymore. It's, it's with me, but you know, where exactly is that stored? Like, do I have to go out and buy a, you know, a, a flash drive or an extra hard drive for my own, you know, data locker or who exactly is housing that? Yep. So uh, we, we've done a lot of work on the storage side precisely for this reason, because someone needs to pay for storage. Someone needs to make sure that that data is reliable, is available. And the approach that we took is we basically developed a new type of a wide area file system. It's called Gaia, and it gives users these private data lockers. So logically, what it looks like is that every user has their own kind of like private encrypted home drive where data from all the different applications that they use is effectively in different folders on their home drive. Uh, and just like kind of like in the in the good old days of desktop computing where you could have that data on your main hard drive or you could have it on a backup drive or you could try to put it like somewhere else. Uh, interestingly, we are making it easy for people to have multiple backups of, 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 of this data. Right, so you can have it on your computer. Uh, if you want to buy some extra hard drive, plug it in. You can have a copy there as well. But most importantly, you can actually store it in a secure, encrypted way with existing cloud storage providers. And I think that's the critical thing, where we repurpose storage that's available in data centers, and and repurpose it in a way that is fully decentralized. And users sometimes already have an existing relationship with that company. Like, for example, let's say I'm a Dropbox user. I have one terabyte of space on Dropbox. I can actually plug in my Dropbox and contribute storage space to my own home drive. So my logical drive can be placed on top of Dropbox uh, in that example. Damn, that's powerful. I mean, my question, my follow-up question there was, you know, I think it would be hard for apps built on Block or Blockstack to take off if everybody has to go buy you know, hard drives and infrastructure, but what you're saying is that they can still leverage the cloud in an encrypted way to back up their data if they need to. Yes, absolutely. And they can, uh, and we make it super easy for people to connect existing services. For example, uh, Google gives everyone kind of like free five gigs. You can just connect that, or you have some storage space on the laptop or the desktop you're on, right? So that's a default uh, place to start with. And even we as a company, give users some amount of free storage 
uh, on a service that we are currently running. And obviously, at some point, you know, we won't be able to just hand out this free space, but it's a good bootstrapping mechanism where instead of asking users to set up and connect their Dropbox or Google Drives, uh, we can just give them some small amount of free space. That's incredible. So in reality, you know, you guys, I mean, in reality, you're not so much competing as you're, you're actually leveraging that cloud infrastructure, which is amazing as well. But do you think in your mind that there's anything AWS can do to basically, you know, put you guys out of business or, or be really competitive? Like, could they amp up their security and say, hey, you know, every file is ultra encrypted now or anything along those lines? Or do you think that fundamentally they won't be able to compete with you guys? I think the value add from our applications is coming from the utility of the applications, right? So if a user is using, let's say, Graphite uh, for for kind of like writing up documentations or spreadsheets, and a user is using another app called BlockoSign for actually signing documents between users, that's where the utility is coming from. Storage is kind of like a low-level thing that, and especially when they can put their data anywhere they want, they can migrate very easily from one provider to another. So the storage kind of like becomes a commodity. It's a, it's a dumb drive, and it doesn't really matter who your storage provider is. So I think whenever something becomes a commodity and becomes very easy to replace, it becomes very hard to compete there. Uh, similarly, I think in our kind of like initial discussions with with a lot of these cloud storage providers, interestingly, uh, providers who actually do not have a business model where they're trying to monetize user data, right? Let me give you an example. Like, for example, Google or Facebook, they have a business model where they are trying to monetize user data. So they're actively kind of like snooping around your personal data, where Whereas there are companies, let's take Dell for an example, uh, who do not have that business model. And if you're storing data with the cloud storage that Dell provides you, uh, Dell actually has no incentive to snoop around that data. And they actually don't, it doesn't matter to them if you're keeping data in an encrypted way as a private data locker on uh, on Blockstack, or you're just storing files in some other format, right? So there, there's a lot of support from from companies who are not in the business of kind of like knowing more and more about their uh, about their users, because for them their business model is the same. It's just data that they're storing. Awesome. And last question on this topic, Manib, do you think that if people have to buy infrastructure or if people have to allocate to cloud providers on say a per user basis, you know, instead of getting the scale that an app would have to basically have buying power with a cloud storage provider, do you think that if people have to go out and front these costs that the underlying applications and use cases could become too expensive per se, or do you think that people will be okay with you know the cost trade-offs for better privacy on on new applications built on Blockstack? Yeah, so I think of this as uh, almost like the cost that you pay to either your ISP or your uh, cell phone provider, right? So ISPs charge you per month. Same with you know a company like AT and T or T Mobile, uh, where you have a subscription and you're paying every month because you know they're providing a service to you. Similarly, if you want, so the main cost to the user in our model is basically data storage. Like, where are you storing your data? Uh, and if you are, let's say, paying seven dollars extra on top of your normal internet bill, do you have an encrypted private data locker for all of your apps? 
I think that is something that over time people can have a mental model for that. That yes, this is something where I pay to use the internet, right? And every single thing I do on kind of like this new internet uh, touches this drive, and I need to pay for it. So that's that's kind of like the model that we are operating in. And then we have, we've had uh, discussions with several developers who might be interested in actually subsidizing these costs as well, uh, just like we are right now. We are we are running a free service because it matters to us uh, to get more users on the platform right now, and it makes business sense for us to to provide that free storage. All comes full circle. So we've discussed how you guys are going to compete with AWS on the infrastructure layer. I do want to go into some specific examples on apps later on, but before we get there, let's just spend a little time on the developers because I think that you and I would both agree that they're just central to building out an ecosystem. You know, you said you guys had 120 uh, apps built on Blockstack already. I'm just interested. You know, how easy is it for developers to build on Blockstack? Um, is everything you know built out from a tooling perspective, or, or is there a lot of work? And you know, just for context here, I mean. As we discussed, AWS makes it pretty easy. Uh, Polkadot is building out Substrate, which is basically you know drag and drop to build apps and blockchains. And Ethereum and a bunch of others obviously have a multitude of tools out there as well. Yeah, so it's it's super simple. Obviously, we are constantly improving our tooling. Uh, and to give you an idea of like these 120 applications uh, in Q4, these applications went from I believe 17 to 46. And then they went from 46 to 84 in Q1. And now, so far in Q2, I think we've crossed like 120 applications. So that would give you uh, kind of like an idea of how rapidly are these teams building applications on, on top of Blockstack. And the main reason why they're able to do that is because it's it's relatively very simple. Uh, our, our goal was that it should not be harder to build your application in a decentralized way than it is to build in a traditional uh, web 2.0 type of system. But I think in many ways, it's actually simpler to build your application this way because imagine, uh, let's say you're a front-end engineer and you want to build an app. In the traditional sense, you would first have to go and pair up with a back-end engineer, someone who can actually under who understands databases and servers and it can actually handle the back-end infrastructure. In our world, there is no backend infrastructure, right? There are just these libraries that help you interact with our, the Stacks blockchain or the Gaia storage system or the OAuth protocol, but you don't have to actively manage your own backend infrastructure, which is a huge advantage for developers because they can just focus on their own app logic and uh, uh, build their app. Interestingly, another thing is that developers also don't need to learn smart contract languages. So there is a smart contract language called Clarity uh, that we have, and uh, we can we can go into it if you're interested. But for most of the use cases, you're actually not writing smart contracts. You're writing general purpose, typical applications that you would be building in the more traditional client server model. But it's, it's a little bit easier to do it uh, in the new model where you don't have to worry about the backend infrastructure. It's incredible. And thinking about the developers here, does composability come into play with Blockstack? Um, you know, I hate to keep hitting on these examples, but you know, Ethereum has a, an application called Veil, which basically leverages Ethereum and Zero X and Augur, and then they also have Primitoff, which is derivatives, and that's built on Ethereum and Augur and DYDX um, and MakerDAO's Dai. I'm just kind of wondering if Blockstack kind of has the same synergistic kind of 
composability building blocks for developers because it seems to me like once you have that, you can have developers build applications on top a lot faster. Absolutely. So I think composability, I, I think about it in two terms. One is kind of like the open source angle of it, that what type of things are available as open source that people can just fork and modify and, and do something there. So, so in that sense, there are some example applications built on top of Blockstack where let's say it's a very simple blogging uh, app. Someone can fork it and, and try to modify it into something like a Twitter Right, so that's that's one angle, and the same thing happens with Ethereum smart contracts. People start off with some example smart contract, they uh, fork it, that they start adding the functionality that they need, and so on. So that's that's one thing, and that's that's a property of open source software, and it, it certainly exists on top of Blockstack. The second interesting thing is this concept of middleware, where if there is interesting functionality that a lot of people need, uh, you start noticing these middleware software that emerge. And we are already seeing that on top of Blockstack. Uh, more specifically, there is a software called Radix. So it emerged uh, from needs of like certain developers who wanted some sort of a notification service, or they wanted more traditional database-like interfaces uh, to work with, because they're, mentally, it's easier for them to think of uh, interfaces in terms of databases as they're used to in the in the typical manner. Uh, so this service almost like organically emerged on top of Blockstack that is now being used by a lot of applications, right? So that's this, this type of middleware is actually very interesting because it packages a lot of common functionality that developers need uh, into a single layer that can then be reused. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. And just closing out this thought, are there any applications built on Blockstack? I know it's early that you're thrilled about or that you didn't see coming. I know you mentioned Graphite earlier today. Yeah, so I sometimes get this uh, question and I'm, I, I'm usually careful not to pick any favorites, especially because we run this program called App Mining where uh, a certain distribution of our stacks tokens uh, will go out to developers on a monthly basis, right? And we worked hard on making that as neutral as possible, as decentralized as possible. And there, we work with game theorists out of NYU and Princeton to design kind of like this app ranking mechanism. Uh, so I think the best way to check out top applications on Blockstack is just to go and look at the latest rank that comes out every month. I believe the May rank is already out. You can go on uh, app.co slash mining to take a look at what the latest ranking is, who are the top applications uh, that are listed in our app, app mining program. With that said, uh, some of the apps that I've recently been uh, noticing that I'm using more, one is called Dmail. So it's, uh, it's actually not SMTP at all. So it is a completely different email system uh, fully built on top of Blockstack and where your Blockstack IDs, so I have munib.id, that becomes my email address. And people are, especially our community members, are uh, interacting with me a lot there. They're sending suggestions or emails or even like some, some, some people are sending me work email there, which is very interesting to see that this system is actually not email uh, and still being actively used by, by a fair amount of people right now. That's incredible. And I don't want to focus on the Stacks tokens because they've been addressed on other podcasts, um, but I do like the funding aspect. Could you briefly give an overview of that? Because I, I think funding is really coming to a head in the ecosystem because core developers aren't getting paid, projects don't have sustainable funding models. 
Um, and funding is just frankly, you know, just running out, I feel like for a lot of projects. And, you know, now you have new things like Moloch DAO and community initiatives to kind of, you know, fund developers, but I think they're all still experiments really. Yeah. There are two things we did in terms of funding. The first was that uh, when we were conducting our 2017 token offering to accredited investors, so that was around a a 47.5 million offering, we had these self-imposed milestones on ourselves, right? The first milestone was actually building out the the Stacks blockchain and pushing it live. And a fair amount of uh, capital was actually linked with that milestone. So only if we deliver on uh, this technology, do we would get to unlock the capital. And similarly, there's a milestone two as well that is more uh, linked with getting users on the network and getting real growth. And I think like that kind of approach uh, was very helpful in keeping the team focused and also keeping the team very lean as well, because we only had access to 20% of the capital for the longest time, right? So on paper, it was a 47.5 million token offering, but only 20% of that came out uh, as R&D for the core team. And I think in many ways that is actually helpful because if you look at uh, advice from uh, Y Combinator or, or PG, so our, our team went through Y Combinator back in summer of 2014, like they would explicitly tell you that more money can sometimes end up harming you as well because you end up thinking that you can solve problems just by throwing more money and people at it. And usually, like that's not the right approach. You uh, a, a, a smaller focus team can sometimes end up executing much better and much faster. So that was that was one aspect of fundraising for us, where uh, the bulk of the money was actually unlocked when we launched our network just in Q4, uh, and so we do have access to capital. Secondly, uh, we are very actively thinking about incentives for developers, and so on our. On the Stacks blockchain, it's not just the miners that get the tokens, but it's all the developers who are adding value by spending time and effort building applications as well. So this this idea of like who, what incentives do people have to actually come in and develop the ecosystem or develop applications on the ecosystem, we, we address that problem head on by having very explicit token allocations and distribution mechanisms and fairly sophisticated app ranking mechanisms kind of like built into the core protocol. That's incredible. That, that's a really interesting way to approach funding. And I like the milestones. And, you know, you were right. You guys were first on that because, or, you know, to my knowledge, you were first on that because I think Aragon just launched a funding initiative where projects can raise based on milestones. That's pretty interesting. And Manib, just to close out, I wanted to discuss um, basically the end game here, which would be kind of a viral app built on Blockstack. And I think that social media comes to mind a lot because of, you know, you have EOS launching The Voice. I have my own concerns there. But you also have Facebook launching GlobalCoin. So I'm kind of wondering your take, I guess, before we dive into it on a high level. Do you think a social media platform like Facebook or Twitter that tax on a crypto can compete with a more blockchain native based application that's built from the start? I think it's very hard to say. It really depends on the execution of the team, like how serious is the company uh, and how, how willing are they to kind of like throw away their existing uh, business models and completely try to focus on a crypto based uh, business model where giving value back to the users 
So at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, uh, making your system more inclusive. Like, for example, uh, if you look at Twitter or Facebook, all of the value on these networks is being generated by the users. Users are generating all the content. They're interacting with people that they know. They're bringing their kind of like relationships to these platforms. But the companies are benefiting from it. If anything, uh, the ads that people see is, is a bit of an annoyance for them and almost like a tax for using these free products, whereas they're adding so much value to the ecosystem, right? So uh, fundamentally what's happening is that uh, you're trying to move towards a world where these users would have a vested stake in the success of the, uh, a social network, right? And I think that's a very, very powerful thing. And different people are approaching it from, from different angles. The blockchain projects are kind of like saying, we understand the, uh, the the blockchain side of things. We are going to build an app on top. Existing apps are saying we have all the users and we are going to try and build the technology. And I think it's very, it's very hard to predict uh, what would end up happening. Uh, our approach is a little bit different. We are saying that we are not going to try and build applications on our own uh, blockchain and developer platform. Our job is to make it really easy for developers to basically build whatever they want to build on top, right? So uh, we want to be in a situation where there are thousands of experiments happening on top of our ecosystem, and we would just organically see uh, winners emerge on top. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I know you guys are the infrastructure. I just, I definitely think it's worth talking about what could eventually be built, and I think you're right that it's impossible to predict. I'm just wondering if a social media site was built on Blockstack, and let's say it's working and it's, and it's pretty powerful and well used. Do you think that there's anything Facebook could do or an inflection point they can reach to basically cut you guys off from success or the application built on top? Because in my opinion, I, I feel like it would be very hard to for Facebook to disrupt themselves when, you know, at the end of the day, they have equity holders and, you know, bondholders and you know, a whole corporate structure there. Yeah, I think they can these these networks they can they can try to do all sorts of things like uh, use their terms of service or try to limit access to users of certain applications like let's say a user is trying to authenticate through a site like LinkedIn or Facebook and then trying to pull their data out of it I think there are interesting things that Facebook can potentially do there but then there are regulations as well like for example uh, if if there needs to be an option for a user to kind of like download their data, then that option can also be used for users to migrate away uh, to, to a decentralized social network, right? So there are, there are limits to things these large companies can do, especially like if uh, a network is not even relying on kind of like migrating existing users, but it's just like, here's a, here's a new network, you know, we will just bootstrap it from scratch. There's almost like nothing a large company can can try to do uh, in terms of like stopping a movement towards towards a decentralized social network. I think the challenges there are more in terms of uh, these interfaces currently being more clunky or people uh, having a hard time getting over the network effects. Like if all of your friends are on Facebook, it's very hard to join a network where uh, nobody's there, right? So it's, it's, it's those challenges that are, I think, harder to to overcome than uh, basically worrying about what, what a large company can do to, to stop you from building a decentralized social network. That's incredible. And thinking about inflection points for users, I mean, I know we discussed this, but it's kind of like users don't care about their privacy today. And 
you know, a key driver for, I think, you guys and the blockchain space is empowering these users to basically own their own data. What do you think the an inflection point could be where people say, okay, you know what, I finally had enough. I want my, I want to actually control my privacy. Do you think it's, you know, Facebook getting hacked or do you think it's a generational shift when the next generation comes online? What do you think the inflection point is for actual users? I think, uh, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated thing in general and there are multiple factors. I'm going to try and touch upon a few of them. One thing that needs to exist is first, really attractive alternatives need to exist, right? Like imagine uh, an alternative to Twitter or Facebook that is really well designed, that is actually enjoyable to use, uh, that has, you know, interesting uh, community that is already kind of like bootstrapping and is is there so that it becomes easier for people to join that uh, growing community and and all of that right which is which is which is a very important factor then i think the the next thing uh, kind of becomes these issues with existing services right like these massive hacks or business policies. Like I think one interesting thing that recently happened with Medium, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of people are recently moving away from Medium. And the I think the inflection point there was when Medium started charging readers for content that was produced by other people, right? Which just made no sense. Like I just wrote something for my own uh, personal blog and now that is behind a paywall. Like how exactly does that work out? Uh, and then a lot of people started moving away from Medium. A lot of bigger companies who initially saw the benefit of being on a centralized platform started pulling out and started hosting their own blogs, for example. So, so similarly, I think there can be multiple different inflection points for a particular type of application, right? Uh, let, let's take Patreon as an example. I think Patreon was getting a lot of heat for banning certain type of activities on the network, and then there was a major backlash. But they actually proactively addressed the backlash and were able to keep a lot of their users. They could have handled it very poorly, and that could have been an inflection point where they, we might have seen a migration of users away from from that platform. So, I, so I think it's a it's in general it's a uh, it's a fairly complicated thing. Uh, and obviously, you know, if a if a large hack where you know let's say google gets hacked or facebook massively gets hacked like these things can be like really uh big triggers and i'm by the way i'm hoping that those things don't happen right like i'm not i'm not sitting here praying that hey let's just hope like gmail gets hacked and then people would realize how important uh, their privacy is i'm actually hoping that we are able to fix our underlying systems and protocols before a major hack like that happens. That is great, color, and your answer makes a lot of sense. And not to harp on this, but you know, we did discuss earlier how Blockstack does use the cloud providers for storage or replication. I'm assuming, though, that this would be done in a more secure manner than that the social media sites use today, though. Correct? So, like, a hack would hopefully be harder to pull off on Blockstack's users versus the cloud providers per se. Yeah, absolutely. So the fundamental. A model that is different here is you would have to hack a user, meaning get access to a user's private keys to be able to decrypt the user data. Whereas if Facebook gets hacked, everyone gets hacked, right? So you change the attack model where if a 
if a hacker wants to get access to data of a million users, the attacker would need to go and hack those million users individually and get access to their privacy. Wow. Yeah, good luck on having enough time for that, right? And just moving on to the reasons why developers would want to move over, because we just discussed the users. What do you think could be an inflection point for the developers to move off of Facebook? I know platform lock-in is a big one. You already discussed Medium, how that's happening. But I think you know even logging in with Facebook or running applications on Facebook is definitely uh, developer lock-in. I'm just wondering if that's the main reason you think would dra- that would drive people to Blockstack. Yeah, I think there, there can be uh, definitely business reasons uh, for for uh, that can act as an inflection point. Uh, for me, the most interesting uh, triggers are actually one when developers are interested in trying out a new framework and they just like the new framework so much that they start building things that way, right? I think that's a very powerful thing. Like the curiosity of developers where they just want to build things the right way, the best way, uh, if you can can get that, then it's very hard uh, not to succeed. Right, that 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 is something that we are we are actively trying to do. Like, imagine, forget about crypto, forget about you know Android, iOS, AWS, all these different things. In the end, the platform that's going to end up winning is the one that has the best developers or the most amount of good developers. Right. So, where, whatever developers are interested in. Like that's the thing that would end up succeeding. So we are we are trying to gear a lot of our efforts toward that, where we are trying to understand uh, what what is a good product for developers. Like why would they be interested in building apps uh, in this way versus versus the old way? So so that's one thing. The other thing is like purely business reasons. If you are kind of like an indie hacker or a small startup and you are not interested in a lot of costs attached with running servers or databases, or you don't want to be liable for a lot of user data. Like sometimes it makes sense for you uh, not to feel responsible for a lot of user data on your servers, and you you just basically want to build your app in a way where you're not liable for it. Right. So those those could be very interesting trigger points. I love that you're focused on attracting developers. I I spend a ton of time. That's a huge focus of mine too. Do you think that Blockstack could? I know that we talked about network. Well, let me let me rephrase this. I know we talked about network effects, and it could be hard to you know use a new social media site if your friends aren't on it or something like that. But isn't it true that with Blockstack you could have the developers incentivize users in ways that they can't on Facebook today? Whether that be through I don't know governance or crypto economics or in in new ways, or would that not work? No, absolutely. I do think that developers have a richer tool set over here where they can especially use uh, tokens as incentives or actually give users uh, really strong incentives. And for, for example, uh, what if you can pay users to watch ads, right? Or what if you can pay users uh, uh, some share of your revenue in microtransactions based on whatever content that they were contributing on the network. And, and we have seen some examples like Steemit was one of one of them. Uh, I, I don't think it's 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 doing that well lately, but that was just like kind of like weave one attempt of trying to monetize user-generated content. And we will see more efforts like that as well. I think broadly what's what's happening is that if you look at how open source software kind of like 
saw its roots and then became such a massive thing over the years. Uh, that was mostly driven by interest. People were building in, people were contributing to open source projects because they wanted to. Whereas you look at crypto, it's not just open source and open protocols, but there are really strong incentives available to contribute to these protocols and these open open source projects as well, which kind of like puts a lot more fuel on the fire. And, and we might actually see uh, more rapid uh, adoption from developers because it's it's not just that they're interested, but there are strong incentives uh, for them to basically do work on these protocols. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, Maneev, if you had, uh, you know, a lunch with Mark Zuckerberg or you, you you guys were able to talk for say an hour. Is there anything you think you would ask him to do differently or to change? Or are you guys just so different at this point that basically whatever's built on Blockstack and whatever's built on Facebook is just always fundamentally going to have different design goals? I, I think like Facebook obviously is a, is a large company and has a lot of market power and can actually use a lot of those resources for helping uh, the internet for helping all the different users. So I would I would definitely spend my cycles trying to uh, build upon the kind of stuff that Mark has publicly said about uh, focusing on privacy or uh, helping kind of like build this different version of Facebook where users' rights and users' privacy is much better respected. And I would actually try to spend more time educating him on kind of like the different technical challenges. Like in a way, like we have a five years head start, right? So I would try to uh, synthesize some of our learnings and try to help them understand what the challenges are and how they can realize uh, the direction that they're trying to set. So it's always hard for me to predict like, you know, uh, how serious the company is in terms of really going in that direction. But if they're actually serious, like my, I think my, uh, my, gut reaction would be to try and help them as much as possible. That makes sense. And my last question for you, Maneeb, I know we didn't really talk about this, but regulations um, could be a potential headwind for or be you know terrible for Facebook or even AWS if, say, a government wants to break them up or wants more control or wants to enact monitoring or regulations. Do you think that that could be a major driver to drive developers and users to Blockstack? Or do you think Mark Zuckerberg and AWS basically you know, have the ear of the regulators and that will never really be a concern? This particular question, uh, let's just say that uh, broadly it's my view that uh, antitrust type of regulations would become more relevant in the coming years and that can put more pressure on these large companies uh, to take decentralization more That's seriously. incredible. Well, Maneeb, I wish you the best and the entire team you guys are really driving home a lot of your values and points here, and I commend you guys on on all the attention, and it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for hosting me, and I really enjoyed uh, the fact that we ended up discussing most of the technology. No, just trying to differentiate this. I, I covered you guys way back when at Oppenheimer in, in the blockchain white paper I wrote there before leaving, and uh, I've always had an eye on you guys for a while. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you learned anything, please share the episode around and give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store.